0: or find them online at explorehsv.com. They are REMAX of Hot Springs Village at 1-800-364-9007 or online at explorehsv.com.
1: Joining us on Hot Springs Village Inside Out, I'm your host, Dennis Simpson. And joining us today is Bruce Westerman. Congressman Westerman, how are you this morning, sir?
2: Doing well, Dennis. Good to be with you. I'll Appreciate you,
1: you what, having me on. Yeah, well, it's our joy. I've I've heard you so many times on KVRE. Now, I'm going to start with uh, what I think is the stunner. Okay, and this is just rumor that I've heard, but if I'm not mistaken, you are the only licensed forester in the U.S. Congress. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. Um, I'm the only. I'm definitely the only one in the House and Senator Rich. Uh, he, he studied forestry in undergraduate school, but he went on and became a lawyer and he, he never practiced forestry, but such you know, a definitely the of, only,
1: such a waste of his life. That's so sad. I mean, becoming a <laughs> lawyer that he, he just dead ended his career, right?
2: Hey, yeah. He seems to be doing okay. But, uh, so I'm, I am the only one that ever got licensed to practice forestry and did some of that work. And I still keep my license, uh, valid today.
1: Because you never know when this whole Senate thing, or Senate, excuse me, a Congress thing, is not going to work out, right?
2: You you never know. I, I've got an engineering license and a forestry license, and I keep them both updated. So uh, hopefully, I, hopefully, I won't miss too many meals if something happens with Congress. <laughs> Don't want to have to be eating beanie weenies later in the week, right? Hey, beanie weenies, unlike Washington, is a delicacy. I think <laughs> so. Uh, I i uh there's certain places where beanie weenies are the food of choice
1: i think so i think so well in the right setting in the right setting right right well i tell you what let me let me start with and and i the the, the i told you the one fact i, I said uh, that i knew about you tell me more i mean how does a guy from a forester from south arkansas become a a u.s congressman tell me more
2: well that's a question i get asked a lot of a <laughs> lot of times and uh it, it all started when I ran for school board, and uh, I was on the Fountain Lake school board. Uh, so I was uh, working at Mid-South Engineering Company in Hot Springs, and uh, um, everything was going fine. I had had young kids, and they started the school, and uh, I ended up on the school board. And from there, because of the term limits, I ended up in the state legislature. And then you know, Tom Cotton ran and won the fourth district congressional seat uh, and then he ran for Senate and the seat was open so uh, um, I, I played football at the University of Arkansas and Coach Hatfield always said there's there's no such thing as luck it's where preparation meets opportunity. so maybe I was prepared and the opportunities came along and I took those took advantage of those opportunities but I, I tell you the first day I was sitting behind the big desk in the office in Washington DC the, the same thought crossed my mind how in the world did this happen? <laughs>
1: How did I get here? Was this a plan? Was this a plan, right?
2: Yeah, it was never. It was never written out as a, a long-term goal or a plan. It just kind of morphed into something. But I, I really enjoy it. People always say, "Did you used to be an engineer? Or did you used to be a forester?" And I say, "No, I'm still an engineer, and I'm still a forester. I just use those uh, those skills in Congress."
1: Well, I tell you what, I, and, we, and I, I want to I, I preface you a little bit more about Hot Springs Village Inside Out. We made a tragic, tragic, a significant mistake. We believed that we would be able to make a hyper local podcast that was just about the Hot Springs Village area. And we could not have been more incorrect because within weeks, days, we had Australian visitors, uh, Russian, uh, Sweden. I mean, you name it because, you know, the web is the world and everybody goes there, Right. Uh, and I, I really, I, 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 many times I've, I've had a realtor friend of mine who watches the show and he's like, you know, Dennis, I really enjoy your show, but sometimes i would just want to take you and push you out of the way and look at the lake, you know? And, and I think that, and I also realized, you know, we take for granted, I, I had a friend from California. She came in and I said, well, what do you think about Arkansas? And she said, it's so green. And I paused a minute and I said, well, what color is it supposed to be? It, it's supposed yeah. to be green, right? I, not having traveled a lot, you know, but a lot of people around the world don't understand the forestry business in Arkansas. Could you, and I know this is a strange question, but could you discuss the, the emphasis of forestry in South Arkansas in this area?
2: Yeah. Well, when you look at the <clears throat> forest district uh, where I represent the, uh, the forests cover about 87% of the landscape. And, uh, then you've got another twelve uh, percent that's uh, developed or urban areas, and uh, or no, it's farmland. I'm, I'm sorry. And then you've got about a percent or so that's that's urban areas that are developed. So it's a uh, Arkansas is a rural state. The fourth district is exceptionally rural. And uh, you know when you get off of the main roads, a lot of what's left there are forests. There are over two million acres of the Washington Ozark National Forest in the fourth district. And uh, when you look at Arkansas's economy, agriculture is the largest part of the GDP. And then under the under agriculture, forestry is the largest single uh, sector in uh, in agriculture. It's it's larger than rice farming or soybean farming or or cattle or poultry uh, when you just break it out um, by different sectors. So forestry is very important to the environment and to the economy here in Arkansas. And I think that's a great message that I can take across the country because some people tend to believe that you can't have a a healthy environment and a strong economy at the same time. And I contend that the two go hand in hand, that you can't have one uh, without the other. And if you don't believe that, travel to some of the most destitute places on the earth and uh, you'll see how they treat their economy um, or, or their environment, not because they're uh, they're against the environment. They just have to do what they can to, to live and get by. So uh, along with... Healthy forests come clean, comes clean water, and we've got an abundance of water here in Arkansas, too. We're really a a very blessed state when you look at the the rest of the country. And I think we're positioned to do really great things going forward. Um, You know, out in California, they're in the West, they're experiencing severe drought. There's 600,000 acres of land in the Central Valley of California that's not going to be planted this summer uh, because they simply don't have water. And that's where the vast majority of our fruits, nuts, and and vegetables. um, And when I say fruits and nuts, I'm talking about things you grow. Yeah, it it comes from California. Um, So with Arkansas's uh, vast ag land and the, the abundant water that we have, we should be much better stewards of that water and develop more surface irrigation systems. But I think we're well positioned uh, to to be a major supplier of agriculture products uh, going forward, we're already uh, number one in rice production, and we're way up there in uh, just about every uh, ag commodity that that we grow here in the state. Uh, very strong in poultry as well. We well, you know my my parents are actually from, and I'm going to pronounce this correctly,
1: Sheridan, Sheridan. That that's the correct way to pronounce it. I don't know if you know that, but Sheridan, Arkansas. And I, my dad tells the story about that down in Grant County. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Where, where where God lives. I don't know if you know that, but he, he and he's a missionary Baptist. I don't know if you know that too, but you know, he, <clears throat> he does claim an affiliation, you know, that's my joke. But, yeah. uh, I was going to say, you know, in, in Grant County, it, it, it's virtually all timber. I mean, and you don't see it, you don't go, wow, there's just timber like you would in Pine Bluff or in, in, uh, Oh, um, uh, Jefferson County, you don't see that. That's the predominant factor, but they're going by you all the time. The trucks are going by you all the time, and there's people cutting areas and harvesting. And you, you, where I'm going with this is, is that we think see the world in such a microcosm, but it's such a, a macro at the same time. And my point being, my dad talks about when he was a kid growing up that that uh, cotton prices collapsed across the the world, basically. And when that happened, it affected a little farmer in Sheridan, Arkansas, more than one would ever have imagined.
2: Right. Um,
1: Bring that, because I know you have a a wonderful knowledge of these things, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to to ask you on our show. One of the things that crosses my mind is I see, as we speak, they're trying to ship millions of tons of grain out of Ukraine and having trouble getting it back on the market how does that affect the arkansas farmer or the kansas farmer for that effect when these wheat prices higher prices is a good thing but starvation is never a good thing you know we we think it just affects us but it's a
2: global chain right yeah it's a global market and it's a it's a pretty fragile market when you look at it as a whole and there there likely will be uh some famines in some part of the world um because of the disruption of grain supply out of Ukraine and out of Russia this year. And, you know, you would think that um, U.S. producers will be growing as much as they could to fill in the, the gaps there. But if you look at the data out of Arkansas, we're actually down in some of the planted acres this year. And that gets into energy cost and supply chain and uh, and input cost and you know one of the or i would say the key ingredient to growing row crops is nitrogen fertilizer and the main ingredient for nitrogen fertilizer is natural gas so if we're seeing natural gas um, shortages around the world and increased cost in gas you're seeing a huge increase in the cost of, of fertilizer so it's uh, you know there's multiple effects that can domino on you here and plus Add in the fact that we've got the drought out west, and uh, we've had some drought here in Arkansas, so we're probably not going to have any kind of bumper crops this year. You've got what's happening in in Ukraine and Russia and other parts of the world, and and there will be some uh, probably undeveloped countries that go into famine because of this. And uh, I
1: think... I mean, well, let me ask this because I know you—you you have a different level of intelligence that's presented to you than the average Joe Blow. I understand that. And the fragility of the of the supply chain was that a surprise to you, or or did you know that that had existed
2: all along? Oh, I, I knew that existed. I knew that we had exported a ton of manufacturing um, to China, and we were heavily dependent on China for for everything. I mean, my kids used to joke when they would get something they would look for the sticker and find made in china um that and, and it's gotten to the point where it's not just the the finished goods that are made in china it's like even some of the chemicals that are needed for refining uh are made in china so they've they've got a lock hold on some of the raw materials and the inputs that go into other manufacturing and i realize a huge
1: problem. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, and I realize there are some rare earth minerals that we're at a deficit for, too. But let me ask another question, just changing gears for a second. Is, is shipping CNG to Europe, is that a long-term solution? Is that even a possible solution? Are we even going to put a dent in Europe's
2: natural gas needs? Yeah, we could supply Europe's needs and our needs. Uh, we're, we're blessed with, with resources here. Uh, the Marcellus and the Utica shell in Pennsylvania is the largest deposit of gas in the world. So if if you look at gas prices in the US, they're still around six or seven dollars for per, per MCF um, for thousand cubic feet. And in Europe they're up around twenty-five dollars per MCF. Wow. So yeah, now this this goes back to the fertilizer issue. Um, Fertilizer is a world commodity because it can be shipped anywhere. So the price of fertilizer is set on the world market. But the main ingredient of fertilizer, natural gas, is very expensive in in Europe and other parts of the world. Um, So the cost to make fertilizer there is very high. Um, The cost to make fertilizer in the US is lower because natural gas costs are low but the price for that fertilizer gets set on the world market because it's being bid up uh, from from around the world. So, you know, you can think about it this way. If we could export liquid liquefied natural gas to other parts of the world and lower the price globally of of LNG, then it's going to lower costs on things like fertilizer and many, many other things. So uh, that is uh, the, the current administration is, anti-fossil fuels, and for, for whatever reason they want to be that way, uh, they, are, they have doubled down on it, and you know we can't get the permits and the construction done on LNG facilities to export. I'll, I'll tell you one that just kind of takes the cake. Um, you've probably heard about the U.S. importing uh, Russian natural gas, which, by the way, is about 40% dirtier than, than U.S. gas. I've and, got, hard, and harder to refine. Yeah, I've I've got a friend in Louisiana. He calls it dirty Putin gas. <laughs> um, but you know, one of the main areas that it gets imported to is Boston, and the the reason it gets imported to Boston is because we can't build top lines from Pennsylvania up to New England to meet those needs. And the other issue is we can't liquefy it in the Gulf of Mexico and ship it around to a port in Boston because of something called the Jones Act, which is a, it's an important law that says that you can't move stuff from a U.S. port to a U.S. port on a foreign flagged vessel. Oh. Well, we don't have any U.S. flagged LNG ships. So uh, you just you keep running into these regulatory problems that are, you know, at the end of the day, it's causing Massachusetts to import uh, gas from Putin, natural gas from Putin that's an easily solvable problem. Like from an engineering standpoint, I say build a pipeline, build a ship and you've got that taken care of. But from a regulatory standpoint, that's an area where, um, you know, an overzealous administration that hates fossil fuels can shut it down. You know, they stopped the Keystone XL pipeline uh, where we were going to get oil from Canada down to the refineries in the Gulf. And then we, we saw Biden go to Saudi Arabia and, and fist bump the the crown prince there. So uh, it makes absolutely no sense, the energy uh, crises that we're in. Um, You know, if if all of the politics were out of the way, these problems could be solved pretty quickly.
1: This is fascinating. And once again, I want to catch up with everybody real quick. Hot Springs Village Inside Out, Congressman Bruce Westerman, a delight to have you on today and fascinating. I love your set of skills and your perspective that you have here. And actually, what I'm hearing is, is from an engineering viewpoint, which you can speak from because you, you know, you're a licensed engineer, uh, these problems are more geopolitical than they are logistical or or geological. it's, It's doable. We just get stuck in certain ways. One of the things that's crossed my mind a million times when I hear everybody scream about we got to go to renewables now, we got to go to renewables now, is unless you like living like the Amish, we probably have 20 to 40 years of what they call nuclear between here and there if you want to go carbon free. And when you talk about carbon free and you say, "Okay, we're going to go carbon free, number one, however, that would be if you really understand how the world works. But number two, how on earth are you going to have a transition period? Where, you know, somebody's, we're not going to have to go to nuclear if we're going to have air conditioning and power our PCs and all that fun stuff. And, but then even beyond that, when, when we move to a greener economy, which I'm not arguing, let's say we do that. It's not a bad idea. And I'm not even going to touch the climate change thing. It's it, anyway, it's, it's a lightning rod. But all that said, let's say we're moving that direction. Let's say that we do move that direction. What is going to keep India and China from using these dirtier fuels at a much lower cost? and basically subverting ourselves.
2: Yeah, and that's uh, how, how much time we got left, Dennis, because this is something I'll I focus on a, a lot. And uh, I heard a, a fascinating uh, talk by an energy expert the other day, and he brought out a point. Uh, you, you mentioned energy transition. He said, we are not in a tra- transition. He, we have never transitioned away from one fuel to another and he he made the point that before the industrial revolution that biomass that wood basically made up about 80% still consuming more wood wood than we did before the industrial revolution uh we're, we're consuming more coal than we've ever consumed. We're consuming more oil than we've ever consumed. The the world has an appetite for energy and, and we're not really transitioning. We're just producing more and more energy. So what we've got to figure out is how do we produce more clean energy? And what the world wants is reliable and affordable. And I think as the innovators, we need to figure out how to make it clean. Um, and we're upside down in a lot of those areas right now. Uh, I was out in the... Uh, Pacific Northwest out on the uh, Columbia and the snake rivers a couple of months ago. And they've got the, the world's biggest hydroelectric system out there on the, on those rivers. And uh, I was disheartened on the snake river. We went to the last dam called the ice house dam. It had six turbines on it and they were spinning one turbine and they had the other five sitting idle. Uh, because of a court order on how the Corps of Engineers was uh, supposed to operate the dam, supposedly to help the fish. Um, but it's it's much larger than that, um, and it, it gets pretty technical. But when you look at how our hydroelectric facilities were built, they were built to, to provide baseload power, just as the run of the river. As the water goes down the river, um, you, turn a, turbine or turn, you know, turn a turbine and turn a generator and make electricity. Well, now that you've got all the renewables out there on the grid with wind and solar, um, they only produce when the wind's blowing or the sun's shining, so it's very intermittent. And the grid has to take all of that energy that's produced. So you take hydro off of the – think of it as the bottom of the the bucket, and you create space to put all the wind and the solar in there – and now we're using our hydro plants to peak the power on the demand. Uh, so even out at Blakely Mountain Dam, close by, there's two turbines there, and they very very rarely run more than one turbine because they're getting their signal from the the power distribution folks saying we need more power. And because you can control hydro, you're you're using it to fill in the gaps. Uh, so as more wind and solars come online, it's pushing hydro offline. Um, and as we shut coal-fired plants down here in the United States, uh, China built 38 gigawatts of coal-powered plants last year alone. That's one huge coal-powered plant every week that's coming online. And that, so is, if- not
1: the, that is not the clean coal that we think about. That is the dirtiest of dirty coals that China is using
2: yeah and i I was in germany last november uh visiting with he's now chancellor schultz it was a week before he became the chancellor and i had done some research they had 21 nuclear power plants that they said they were going to close them down after the fukushima uh disaster and when i was there they had left and i said are you still planning to close the three down he said absolutely we're going away from nuclear that was before putin invaded ukraine they're still, by the end of this year, they're going to have those last three power plants closed down. They're starting up coal plants, and uh, they, they have to have gas uh, from Putin. They're the largest uh, economy in Europe, and if they don't have uh, gas from Russia, they can't operate. So you get into, uh, you know in the name of saving the environment, you get into some geopolitical situations where nobody benefits more from the higher cost of energy than Vladimir Putin. Uh, he doesn't have to sell as much to get the money to fund his his war machine uh, so if we were smart the us would produce as much energy as we can every way we can produce it and we would export as much energy uh, that would take money out of putin's coffers it would help our our allies around the world and it would be the cleanest most reliable most affordable energy that that there could be in as developing countries uh, come online they you want to have technology, they're going to adapt because of affordability and reliability. And nuclear, um, it should be at the forefront. You know, another thing, I was out at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratories on that trip to Washington, and uh, the amount of next-generation nuclear power that you can build on a a section of land, 640 acres, it would take 70,000 acres of windmills to match the energy you could produce on one section of of land. So you can never do it with windmills and solar panels. And by the way, the components to make those, especially solar panels are coming out of China with Uyghur slave labor. China has control over the, the rare earth elements and basically every mineral that's used in manufacturing, they've gone out and hoarded it from around the world. And here we are again, blessed in the United States. We have (coughs) everything we need, uh, but this administration hates mining as well. Uh, We've seen them close down the Twin Metals Project in northern Minnesota, which is the largest deposit of copper, nickel, cobalt, and it's got uh, platinum there as well. And uh, they closed it down saying it was going to destroy the Boundary Waters canoe area. Well, it's an underground mine way outside the Boundary Waters canoe area, but the narrative is we got to shut this dirty mining down in the United States. Well, they're pushing all this green energy, which means you got to have these elements and minerals and guess who supplies them? China has it, has them hoarded around the world. And I could go on and on with stories like that. Well,
1: and I, as we were talking, I'm thinking, man, I got 50 more questions. But uh, let me come back. and Thank you so much for your time, Congressman. Thank you. Uh, I was standing at, and this is before 9-11. This would be in the late 90s. I'm standing at the Blakely Mountain Dam. The walls are two-foot-thick concrete. You know the facility. I'm sure you've been there. And I remembered asking the guy, I said, boy, when you open these these turbines up, they must fly. And he said, no, just 60 hertz, 60 cycles, because that's you know how we keep the clocks. And there was not much digital at that time, but I'm like, oh, okay. And I said, well, how much power do you make here? And he said, well, we've been upgraded to 82 megawatts. And I said, 82 million watts? He said, yeah. I said, well, you know, uh, uh, oh, what's the one outside Whitehall? What is uh, Red Bull? Uh, uh, Redfield, Redfield, uh, Redfield, Redfield, which was a coal-fired plant, has been moved to natural gas. And I said, but they make like 850 million watts and you're making 62s or 82, 84. He said, yeah, but we can go from zero to 82 megawatts in 60 seconds. And I said, you're joking. He said, no, these walls, these two foot thick walls will shake, but we can do that. And I, I was mm-hmm. just stunned at the amount of power that we were talking about. And I realized at that time, it was a, it was a one-person field trip. I literally realized, I said, well, how long does it take to fire up Redfield? He said, on the average day in Redfield, start, they'll start firing up at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. for the 8 o'clock peak and for the other things during the day. And I'm like, so it takes three and four and five hours? He said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. To get that where it needs to be, you can't ever be you know, below power. You have to make a little more than what you need. And just that simple realization that within 60 miles, 70 miles of each other, there was the there's the uh, uh, Rimble Dam, the Blakely Mountain, you know, two or three other dams that have to work together in cohesion to, with the big plant to make a steady base. And now we have a large cloud storm that comes through and all of a sudden you just kicked 80 megawatts offline. Right. I mean, is it that kind of thing?
2: Yeah. And <clears throat> during the big energy crisis down in Texas, uh, they were running Blakely Mountain Dam. They ran all the hydro plants wide open because they're so reliable. So it shows you, um, you know, hydro is reliable. We could put 12 gigawatts of new hydropower on existing dams in the U.S. without even building a new dam. And the Arkansas River is one of those areas that has a lot of potential for that. Would you, uh, but, I'm
1: sorry, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt uh, Congressman say that again, we could add 12 gigawatts, 12,000 megawatts, right, to existing yeah. dams? I, mean, I I'm just want to make sure I got that. Yeah. Say that
2: one more time. Without, without building a dam, we could do that.
1: Yeah. So just basically putting turbines on dam locks and dams we already have. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable.
2: Yeah. But, you know, I was talking about the the dams on the Columbia river and the snake river, there's Mm -hmm. people who actually want to tear those out. Um, So, you know, the people who don't like fossil fuels also don't like nuclear and also don't like hydro. Um, So it's, you're getting a pretty narrow window on what you can actually make power out of. And that's, what's frustrating is that, um, you know, it just won't work. The physics of making all of our energy from wind or solar, you just, You can't do it. And I don't think people realize the scale of the amount of energy uh, that we use. And it really would move us, move us backwards. And then there's this idea that electric cars are going to save the world. Um, And if you look at the United States, we produce less than 15 percent of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And we've reduced our greenhouse gas emissions more than the other top 12 countries combined. We've done that by replacing those coal power plants with natural gas uh, production. And uh, the the neat thing about natural gas, you were talking about being able to modulate hydro. You can also modulate natural gas just by turning the valve, basically. So you got a lot more control over a gas plant to use it for peaking power. Um, But we've reduced our greenhouse gas emissions and we've done it with natural gas but people hate, hate natural
1: gas. Uh, well, we, but we, we've done it with market economics. I mean, the, the we made so much natural gas and the natural gas fell. So nobody said, let's make a national plan to move to natural gas. It just, there was so much work in the shale planes. We made an abundance of natural gas and all of a sudden energy and everybody else was like, why are we paying for, to haul all this to in? Why don't we just go to natural gas? My fear is we may go back someday. I remember hearing, what, five or six years ago, we have the cleanest air we've had in probably 40 years simply because we've moved over to natural gas. But you're right, there's some people that it just, it it won't please them in any way. Let me transition to one other thing just for a moment. I I hate, hate hearing, hate seeing, hate looking at, hate just the whole topic of the forest fires in California. Mm
2: -hmm. But this
1: is kind of a self-made problem, if I'm not mistaken, and that is, is that, Their environmental protection agency there has basically said, no, you can't do open burns because that'll change, that's too much pollution. So now when they do burn, it's biblical pollution. Am I on the right track?
2: Yeah. And you could even say uh, pre biblical um, pollution from uh, at least way, way before the time of Christ, because we're now burning up our giant sequoia trees and some of them are 3,200 years old. Uh, I, was, uh, I was out in California in May. Uh, there's there's only 70 groves of giant sequoias on the planet. They all grow on the uh, western slope of the Sierra Nevadas, above 4,500 feet of elevation. Uh, they're the most iconic tree in the world. They've survived fires forever. As a matter of fact, the, the Forest Service told us the last record of what they call a monarch Sequoia, one of the really old ones. The last record of one of those being killed by fire was 1267. 1267. Yeah. And and sequoias are a living history book because of the the fire scars on them and being able to count the rings and everything. That's fascinating. But in the last two years, we've destroyed 20% of the total giant sequoias on the planet in forest fires. Let that sink in. Twenty percent have died in two years, and these things are two and three thousand years old. So, and, and all in the all in the name of of saving the environment, exactly. Is that close enough? So what, what happened was uh, after the gold rush in California, the Native Americans quit doing controlled burns, and then the uh, the Forest Service was established around 1900. Shortly thereafter and they started putting every fire out. So the underbrush that the, the low intensity fires would normally clean out every two or three years, it, it's now 150 year old trees that are tall enough where those, they're white fir trees, mainly some pine trees that the, the tops of them are up in the lower crowns of the sequoias. So the fire comes through and runs up these, these smaller trees, what you call them ladder fuel, it, it transmits the fire up into the crown of the sequoias and kills it. So um, the the fire that's burning out there by the mariposa grove, yeah. uh, they they actually did management inside that grove. They've been doing it for about forty years, and the fire didn't didn't destroy the mariposa grove uh, because they had been doing management inside the grove. So we've we've written a bill called the Save Our Sequoias Act, which does on the sequoia growth what we should be doing all across the west in thinning trees so that these low intensity fires can burn through but uh you know that's a that's a never-ending battle out there
1: but the people who don't like fossil fuels the people who don't like nuclear the people who don't like hydro are the same people that don't want you to cut their trees
2: right exactly and there we've you know i think we've tolerated them for for a long time but at some point, the adults in the room have to make the hard decisions and say, um, go somewhere else. Just um, You're, you're denying, you, you claim we don't follow the science. You're denying science. You're, you're making the bed that the rest of us are having to sleep in. And a lot of that's done uh, through lawsuits. You know, it was the, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. Uh, NEPA the the National Environmental Policy Act all of those things were put in place uh, with good intentions but people have learned how to weaponize them now so anytime a federal land agency tries to do anything whether it's the Forest Service the BLM the Park Service then some rogue group comes in and files a lawsuit and it goes to federal court and they don't even have to win all they have to do is delay if they can just delay something happening. Um then over time the, the forest gets overgrown and it's going to it's going to burn up. Uh and and then there's the uh during the civil rights movement there's something called the environmental um uh, justice act. uh wha how's it go? Egypt. Environmental justice act. Or it's it's not environmental, it's uh They've been talking, they've been having so many hearings about environmental justice. It's called the Equal Access to Justice Act. It was passed in the uh, civil rights movement to allow people who couldn't afford to sue the government for the government to pay them to sue. Well, these environmental groups have figured out they can form a, a nonprofit and they can sue the government to stop a forestry project, and the federal government will pay their legal fees. And and it could Um, be
1: it could be people who are personally millionaires doing this because they formed a five hundred one c three that they say can't afford to do this, right?
2: Yeah, and you know they pay themselves large salaries, but their business is a is a nonprofit. Uh, We'll see it a lot of times. It'll just be like a couple of guys operating out of their house, and they'll have some crazy environmental sounding name. They're lawyers. They're filing suits against all these management plans. Well, they get paid the, the lawyer rates for Washington, D.C., and they may be working out in their, their basement in Montana somewhere. Uh, the, the Region 1 of the Forest Service, uh, I had them pull the numbers for me, which that's Montana, Idaho, and Eastern Washington. And they had paid about $2 million in equal access to justice fees in a little over a year.
1: You know I think if we made if we made a change where the the lawyer fee that we would pay would be the same as a, as a public defender, you might not have such a problem if you know what I mean you know, well, we're, happy to pay is, your, we're happy to pay your legal bills but it'll be the same as a as a uh, a public defender right
2: yeah and we i've I've tried all kinds of legislation one of one trial was to uh require them to post a bond hmm. um that if they If they lose their case, then they have to pay back the government for the legal fees. Mm. Well, that was a non-starter. So then we try to we try to model based after baseball arbitration. Um, And the bottom line is the trial lawyers, they don't want anything to interfere with their ability to sue and uh and built money out of the taxpayer even if it's
1: even if it's a nuisance lawsuit even if they know it's frivolous and 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 can has no chance of winning but like you say it can simply delay the system right
2: well and they they get paid for filing the lawsuit under equal access to justice so then if you want to change equal access to justice which was passed during the civil rights movement they call you a racist
1: Yeah, because you're denying these. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let me me come back and turn us around just for a minute here. Let me pull back local for a second. (laughs) Tell me about the role of fire in the Washington National Forest and in this area. What's the history? What's the plan? I mean, look, I love living here in Hot Springs Village. It is wonderful. Um, Five, 10 days a year. It's hazy or smoky because I do it's either doing a controlled burn. Eh, you know, you kind of mumble and grumble. I wouldn't like that. I'd like a w- big wind to come by and fix that. At the same time, what role does that play and how does it affect us?
2: Well, f- fire is a very natural part of the industry. <clears throat> and uh, reading some diaries of the, uh, the first Europeans that came through the Washita Forest in Arkansas, they said you could ride your horse at a full gait. So you think about the Washita Forest, and there's places where you couldn't lead a horse through it right now. You couldn't but crawl on your you, hands
1: and knees through some part of it.
2: Right. But before, uh, when Native Americans were managing it, they used fire all the time. And you had more of a pine savanna type uh, forest system. And the Forest Service has actually done a great job of restoring this. It's the shortleaf pine bluestem grass restoration project. You know, if anybody wants to, to really see the illustration, you can go out by Waldron, out 270, a little place called Needmore and Buffalo Gap Road, and you can drive down Buffalo Gap Road, and they've actually got display signs there telling what's happening on the forest. But this was all done to to save the red cockaded woodpecker. So because of an endangered species, they needed to convert the forest back to the habitat where the, the woodpecker could could thrive. Uh, I wish they would do that to all across the forest because not only did they uh, create great woodpecker habitat, and now they're actually trapping woodpeckers off of the Washtaw forest and relocating them to other places. Really, but the uh, the number of turkeys and deer and quail, all of those numbers went up as well. Plus, the plant biodiversity. There was a, a seed bed. Uh, in the soil or a seed bank in the soil that they think it may have been dormant for like a hundred years, but when they cleared the forest out and used fire to clean the duff off all this vegetation uh, sprouted out, which is great food for for animals and for cover turkey for animals. and deer and all the
1: other animals that i, I was just thinking that through and i I've, I've got a friend by my cousin who was actually asking about twenty one acres in Dallas County last night. And he said, oh, it's it's really unfortunate, but it's all been cut over. And I thought, I know he's a great hunter, and I know he he knows what this is. It's never pretty. I don't know if you know, but after I get a haircut, I don't look as good uh. as I do most of the time, <clears throat> but it's essential. And the bottom line is, is that when you clear cut an area, as much as I don't care for it, the, the woodland animals come flocking to that underbrush and that growth and that new seed and that new growth,
2: Right. Yeah, in, in forestry we call it early successional habitat so or serial habitat. You, you call it what? Early successional habitat or serial oh. habitat. Yeah, and it's it's like animal food. It's like you you uh, created a smorgasbord for for most animals. Um, so there's places for for where, when you're just even managing for animals, small clear cuts with uh, that that provides good animal habitat and uh, you know a lot of people are on hunting leases that are leased out from timber companies Mm -hmm. and there are a lot there's a lot of wildlife on those those hunting leases now on public land i don't think we should be clear-cutting public land but there's ways we can manage public land where you get those same wildlife benefits maybe even better wildlife benefits um so if if we can produce all of the the timber resources we need on private land in a concentrated area that allows uh, us to free up more public land to manage it for wildlife habitat and recreation, Uh, which, you know, when you're looking on a macro level, I think that's what we should be doing.
1: I've had so many people ask me, uh, we have, as you had mentioned, we've alluded to California two or three times. There's, there's many, many web pages about people leaving California, uh, moving to Arkansas. There's, there's, the whole social media groups for it. And, and and I know we need to wrap up here. Bruce, again, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. But just as a follow close up note, I see a lot of people that are talking about moving from Arkansas to from California to Arkansas. Uh, and typically will have between 60 and 70 inches of rain a year. Normal, you know, and I had one guy who now lives here in the village who said, does does the sun ever shine how if it rains that much how does the sun ever shine i'm like uh-huh. yeah. of course he also said does it snow and i said you know once every few years we get a good snow you know and then we had 14 inches this last year but other than that yeah i was pretty accurate but close you know but where i come from and what i'm trying to explain like you say we have such incredible national ha- natural habitat and natural resources and and i tell you what if you could could we have you on again sometime? I'd love to have a show just on lithium in South Arkansas. Would you be willing to talk about that?
2: Oh yeah. Uh we could we could do a show on uh the resources of Arkansas or the resources of the US. You know, Dennis, I'm the uh I'm the lead Republican on the House Natural Resources Committee. So hopefully we'll win the majority this fall and I'll be the chairman of that committee. So I uh I get out and visit a lot of different places when it comes to the, the resources that we have. And I can tell you, Arkansas is very blessed. Our country is very blessed. We yeah. have everything we need um, to supply all of our needs here. Uh, but there just seems to be this attitude of not in my backyard. And, you know, it, it, this will sound like I'm making this up with the cobalt in that goes in the batteries and yeah. the things that we use. Sure. The majority of that comes from the, uh, it's the so-called uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and there's nothing democratic or republic about it, and it's it's dug out of the ground with child slave labor, and and sent to China and processed. So we can talk about not in my backyard, but look what effects that's having across the rest of the world.
1: I heard I heard an article not too long ago, and it was on NPR of all things, but it said that uh, uh, if uh, if, if we went to organic farming, a third of the world would starve. And, you know, there, there are simple facts. There, there are things that are, as we say, dog whistle issues. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Doesn't that sound good? Green, green energy sounds good, doesn't it? That does. Okay, well, then we're going to turn off everybody's air conditioners for the rest of the summer. And we'll, we'll be able to make it through. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want it to impact me. What? I want you to make the changes, not me to make the changes, right? Anyway, I I digress, but I wanted to go back to the 1.8 million acres of national forest just north of me here. What role does that national, well, let me back up again. I had another customer from uh, California who said, what's the air quality like? You know, are there smog days or they're whatever? And I realized we've got 1.8 million acres of national lungs just outside West Little Rock or West Arkansas. How does that affect the whole, How how does that affect things?
2: Well, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who's, who's one of my heroes, he he said trees are the lungs of the earth. And, uh, you know, I'm probably as big of an environmentalist as you would find in Washington, D.C. And the, the Democrats and the left would laugh at that because I'm a Republican. Uh, but I I look at it from the scientific standpoint. What can we do to actually affect the amount of carbon in the atmosphere? What can we do to make water cleaner, to build more wildlife habitat? and to conserve these natural areas and forests are are key in it whether it's uh, clean air or clean water or wildlife habitat forests play a major role that's why i uh, i've sponsored the resilient federal forest act i've sponsored the trillion trees act um, which uh, the cool thing about trees is when they breathe in the carbon dioxide and they breathe out the oxygen they store that carbon in the tree and um you know Walmart's building their new corporate headquarters all out of wood because it'll be a like a carbon sink all that wood that's in your house that's in the this table here it's locked the carbon is locked up in that wood until something till it burns or deteriorates when we burn our forest like we're seeing out west, we're spewing carbon into the atmosphere uh uh, resilient, healthy forest is continuing to grow and store carbon in the in the wood. And when we sustainably use wood products, we're storing that carbon for uh, for a long, long time. So, uh, natural they call it natural climate solutions. And the Wichita Forest, the Ozark Forest, the private timberland, the private farmland in Arkansas makes Arkansas a net carbon sink. Uh, we're states like California and Washington that claim to be. Um, saving the environment, they're net carbon emitters.
1: Unbelievable. i, I tell you what, a Congressman Westerman, I cannot thank you enough. I know we've had logistics trying to get all this lined up, but it has been a delight. And you would come back and talk with us again someday?
2: You bet. This, well,
1: uh, you have, have to
2: get with the folks in my office that tell me where to go and when to do it, I'll be <laughs> glad to do it again.
1: It has been more than delightful. I really appreciate you being on Hot Springs Village Inside Out.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Hot Springs Village Inside Out, a podcast where Hot Springs Village, Arkansas is the star. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can do that by visiting our website, hsvinsideout.com, and tell a friend.